from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Gary Colliver on June 29, 2015. During Gary's 45 years of working life, he did biological research, worked for the U.S. National Park Service in the areas of law enforcement, search and rescue, and emergency medicine. He was also involved in biological resource management planning in Central California, mostly in Yosemite National Park and other areas of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. He holds a bachelor's degree in field biology and a master's degree in interdisciplinary studies and human ecology. Gary is now retired. Soon after retirement, Gary began focusing on climate change by organizing community meetings and interfaith study groups on the issue. Gary is a faculty member of the Wilmette Institute, teaching classes on the relationship between spirituality and the issue of climate change. We talk about the Wilmette Institute and the classes he teaches during the interview. I started the interview by asking Gary where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I'm the only person in my family that wasn't born in San Jose. Uh, I was born during the war in Modesto, California. My father was in the Army Corps of Engineers and was helping build air bases in the San Joaquin Valley at that time until I was about eight months old, I think it was, when he was sent over to the South Pacific with the Army Corps. Uh, We were just sort of moving around, and I don't remember anything about any of that period of time. I was less than a year old. Uh, When he went overseas, we moved back to San Jose, my mother and I, to my grandfather's, my mother's father's walnut ranch, which he managed uh, in the Santa Clara Valley. Uh, He had 100 acres of walnuts, and that's where I lived until I was six years old. And I have quite a few memories of that, very earthy farm life with cows and chickens and gardens and helping out with doing chores and all those sorts of things. And uh, the added bonus of there being a big processing plant, which was fascinating, where they processed the walnuts, It was outside the town of San Jose, just on the edge. Lots of farms, cherries, walnuts, apricots, just all kinds of fruit trees and nut trees in that area. And what was religious life like growing up? Going back quite a ways, my family, both sides of my family were in the Methodist Church. In fact, my, my mother and father first met when they were in Sunday school at the First Methodist Church in San Jose. My grandfather, my father's father, went into the ministry and went back to seminary somewhere back east, I don't remember where it was, and became a religious studies professor and pastor, the minister, uh, at the University of the Pacific, which was in San Jose at that time, and then they moved to Stockton in the early 1920s when my parents were fairly young. So they didn't 
see each other again until my mom happened to go to college at Delta College, which is a junior college, and my dad happened to, at that point, be a student at, at College of the Pacific, and they met each other again and fell in love, and that's how they got together. But they knew each other through the church early on, and I was raised first at the United Methodist Church in San Jose, and then when I was six, my dad built a house up in the foothills on the east side of San Jose, and there were a growing group of people from the Methodist Church that were out there, and that was about five miles or so from the downtown church, and they wanted to start a church of their own up in the foothills. So they got together and put money together and purchased land, and part of my early remembrance is the church families coming together on Sundays, meeting in a garage, and then weekends and evenings building the church, having potlucks on Saturdays and Sunday afternoons after working on the various aspects of the construction of the church. I was very comfortable and very tight in the church, and for a while I was even considering becoming a pastor under the the influence, I guess, at least in part of my grandfather. Later, I kind of drifted towards science. That was a change. But in terms of my religious life, it was Methodist. So what age was it that you started migrating towards science? When I was in high school, Mm -hmm. I had a series of good biology teachers, and I think it was either late grammar school or early high school, I also became very fascinated with insects and began collecting them. And I remember it was in part the result of, I went to some nature programs up in a local park that we had, and the the fellow that ran the, the nature center there and gave classes was something of an entomologist, and I think we collected insects with him up in this park in the foothills, and that just really fascinated me, and so I started doing that fairly intensely. And then one thing led to another through the series, you know, from general science to biology to chemistry in high school. I just really took to those classes, went on into college, started as a chemistry major for just a semester, and then quickly went back to being a biology major. Followed that through high school. My life becomes more complicated, if you will, or mm-hmm. more adventuresome, if you look at it from another way. I also I had a cousin who was a rock climber, and I saw I met a, a friend at college, a young lady who was interested in climbing was with the Sierra Club, and she took me out on a weekend with a Sierra Club group, and, and I kind of fell in love with that, too. Carted College in the fall of 60, and in the uh, winter of 61, 62, and in in January 62, I dropped out of school and went up and worked in Yosemite at the ski area so I could start looking at the possibility of doing more climbing. From then on, I pretty much didn't go to school except in the winter semester because I couldn't stand once the weather got good, not being able to get outdoors. Whether it was studying some sort of biology or going climbing and hiking in the mountains, I wanted to be outdoors as much as I could. 
So I didn't finish my bachelor's degree in biology, field biology and ecology, until 1969. So it took me nine years going off and on to school to, to finish that. I became a professional mountaineer during that period of time. I acted as an instructor, climbing instructor, and mountaineering guide. Also, when I was in school, I was usually I would usually get a job working for a professor in whatever laboratory or field study that they were working with to help pay my way through school. So I worked in a variety of different labs from bacteriology to aquatic biology to bird study, ornithology, uh, and museum curation. So I was getting a lot of different life experiences, I guess you might say, in that nine years that it took me to to finish my degree. When I graduated in 69, I went to work for uh, the Ecology Center in Berkeley because I had also, during that period in studying biology, I'd become quite interested in what was going on in the world in terms of environmentalism. I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring within a year of when it was first published, started following that field quite, you know, extensively for the rest of my life, and it became a sort of a dominant aspect of things that I was doing. An interesting progression in terms of my experience that fall of 1969, when I was working at the Ecology Center, it was in Berkeley, California. It was on just immediately below the western edge of the University of California Berkeley, Berkeley campus. I wasn't really involved in it, but there was a an issue simmering there. The, the university had a big plot of land that wasn't being used for anything. And a whole lot of people had gone in and set up a community garden there. The university was was sort of trying, letting it be known they wanted them to get out, and it became known as People's Park. And it was a big gathering place where people would get together, and they were growing vegetables, and there were a lot of poor people from around the the neighborhoods of the campus that were in there and a lot of students and others. The university came in and put a big fence around it and kicked everybody out, and at some point people tried to take down the fence and get back in, and there was what became known as the People's Park Riot, which, again, this was all going on up the street, if you will, and in the papers as far as I was concerned. And then when the riot happened, it, they kind of closed down big areas around the campus. And the police came in, and they were trying to get them out. And it became pretty violent, mostly on the part of the police. And they were using shotguns with beanbags and rubber bullets and stuff. And somebody didn't have the right thing and, and had a real shotgun shell on their shotgun, and, and a student got killed. Oh, my gosh. That really got everybody upset. There was a protest march, I think, for the day after that happened. You know, at that point, I decided I wanted to go and just share my discontent with what had been at least being reported in the paper about how things were proceeding. And, you know, a whole group of people met, and we walked onto the campus, and 
the National Guard was called out, and they surrounded the campus. The mar- protest marchers were going to come down through City Hall and do their thing, but the National Guard wouldn't let us off campus. And so we kept marching around to different exits and they would, could try to get off, and we would find it blocked. <clears throat> and then they came in and started splitting up the group of people, and eventually they cordoned off or split off a whole group of people into Sproul Plaza, which was a big public sort of forum area on campus. And I was in a group just across the line of National Guard troops from the plaza, and they came over with helicopters and tear gassed from the air Sproul Plaza. And of course, it drifted over and it didn't stay in the plaza this experience of mob psychology and or wanting to lash out and just incredible frustration. A few weeks before that, I had driven with a friend who was a doctor and was doing a postdoc work in um, physiology at the university. He was moving with his family back up to Prince George, Canada, and I helped him drive his truck with a bunch of stuff in it back up to Prince George and then had come back down home. And I called him and asked him if he'd be willing to put us up for a little bit while we were looking for something, a place to work or live in Canada. And he said, sure. And I told Reva that I felt that we just needed to leave because I was getting, I was afraid I was going to get violent if I had stayed around in that environment anymore. And I didn't want to do that. We became landed immigrants in Canada for two and a half years. There I worked part-time at a ski area and part-time at the university doing research in a biology lab. My wife's name is Reva. She was getting kind of tired of the constant cold and the very long winters and short winter nights. She wanted to move down, back down to California. I was pretty much liking it up there and and we'd been having conversations about this for some time. And one night, she was obviously very upset. And I decided that we did need to move back. The next morning in the mail, completely out of the blue, I got a postcard from a fellow that we had met when he was working on his PhD at Yale. He'd just gotten a position at Stanford as a assistant professor starting his career there, and he wanted to know if I'd come down and run his lab for him. You know, it was like, wow, talk about a confirmation. Mm -hmm. Making that decision that night and then having the job offer the next morning back in California was pretty amazing. So I started working for him in that May and worked for him until December of 77, running his lab at Stanford my wife and I met in the summer of 1962, that summer after which I had quit college. She had been working for several years during the summer. She was in college. She had been working up at Yosemite. And we met that summer. We were married three years later in 1965 at the chapel in Yosemite. I also I did trips for the Sierra Club and for mountain travel to in the Sierra Nevada up to Alaska and Canada uh, and by the mountains of Wyoming. So we, we were doing those a lot of those trips together. 
she'd be a cook on a, the trip, and uh, I would be one of the leaders taking people up into the mountains. So when we moved to Mariposa, we purchased a place where her parents had bought some years before, but her dad got sick and had to move into town, so they asked us if we wanted to buy it, and we did. It was a kind of a rough period. I was doing odds and ends, handyman kind of work, and then I had a job off and on as a carpenter. I had left Palo Alto and Stanford in kind of a bad mood mm. because of the, all of the environmental things that I saw that were going on. And the world was, in my eyes, pretty messed up. When we first moved to Mariposa to try to keep handle on those environmental things that I was concerned with, I started going to planning commission meetings. Anyway, when I started doing that, most of the people on the planning commission were interested in pretty narrow issues related to land divisions and not very much in the way of bigger issues, although they were starting to work on their general management plan for the county. And I got on the technical advisory committee for that, trying to promote various environmental issues related to land use. There was only one person on the commission that seemed to be interested in having conversations about these things. And it just so happened that he was a Baha'i. And so I spent about two years investigating the Baha'i faith, in the beginning pretty reluctantly, because I had to carry on a conversation with this guy. I had to find out a little bit about what he was thinking, and he seemed pretty willing to share thoughts with me. At first, it was like reading Greek, trying to read some of the things that he gave me. The first complete Baha'i book that I read was The Dawnbreakers. For some reason, he gave me that. So let me uh, just explain to folks what the, the Dawnbreakers is a fairly comprehensive history of the early phase of the Baha'i faith, probably from about, well, 18... 30s, covering the predecessor of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, uh, covering the prophet founder, the Bab, who was right. the uh, prophet founder of the Babi faith, which was the predecessor to the Baha'i faith. And y there's a lot of Persian names and references <laughs> in that book, yeah. and it's not a small book. And so I could see such a book being overwhelming to a someone being introduced to the Baha'i faith. It was also very fascinating. It's difficult for me to say what kept drawing me into it, particularly in the beginning, but when I started reading a few things in Greenings, and he gave me stuff by, by Abdu'l-Baha. Abdu'l-Baha uh, being the son of the prophet founder, Baha'u'llah. Yes. And Gleanings is one of the works of Baha'u'llah's. One of the early collections translated by the guardian of the Baha'i faith, Shoghi Effendi, mm -hmm. just a, a really broad collection of his writings. He talked about the earth being one country and mankind its citizens, and the earth was like the body of mankind that had been perfect at its origin, but was now afflicted by all kinds of diseases. You know, some of those passages were at the beginning they seemed to strike a chord with me in terms of what I was seeing in the world. So that drew me in a little bit further. 
And the more that I read, the more I was confronted with the analyses that Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha were providing of the condition of the world and the prescriptions that they were giving that would be the remedy for that. Many of them seemed very apt to me. The oneness of mankind, the unity of science and religion, the unity of the religions. I formally left the Christian church in the early 60s, and when people talked with me about why I was doing it, it was specifically the exclusivity that the Christian faith was taking, and it became just not tenable to me anymore to live with that exclusivity of the Christian faith. Starting about that time and extending for, well, up until the time I became a Baha'i, I was increasingly reading about other religions, Hinduism, Islam, particularly Sufism, Buddhism. I read a lot on Native Americans and indigenous peoples, and mostly in the United States, but also North and South America, and a smattering from other countries. And everything I read was sort of confirming my growing view that they all had very similar messages from God, the Creator, to humankind. When I encountered the Baha'i faith, that resonated very strongly with me. When I tell my Baha'i story, the, the things that brought me to it were the unity of the human race, because that made sense to me both spiritually and sociologically and ecologically. The earth being one country, particularly a lot in the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, where he talks about the unity of all of the creatures of the earth, the unity of the religions. Those, those all just drew me in and said, you know, this, this seems really true. You know, I went to quite a few firesides, Firesides um, being introductory meetings of the Baha'i yeah, faith. They, yeah, they were of all kinds, just meeting in people's homes, getting together in a little public hall, having somebody talk about something or read sing songs, just any number of things that would go on and wonderful discussions. And it, I came down to the point where I had to decide that, you know, either this person was who he said he was and it was making all this sense, or he was complete fabrication or an insane person that was still saying things that made sense, and that didn't make sense. <laughs> so I, I just logically, I was confronted with this dilemma, and, and the only logical way out of it was that he was who he said he was, because so much of what he was saying and that came from him in terms of his son and, and this, the religion that he had founded just made too much sense in the worldview that I had been building for 15 or more years. So, Gary, what uh, was it that Baha'u'llah said he was? He said he was a, the messenger for God in this day. Humankind, you know, in the beginning we, we were one. We spread out over the earth as we began to advance our civilizations, and we became separate societies. So it made sense during that period that different messengers had to come to different people 
at different times. And Baha'u'llah said to every people there was a book and a prophet. But today, the world is contracted into a neighborhood. We live in one world. It is interconnected in all kinds of ways, socially, physically, uh, ecologically, it's connected. This is the time of the ingathering of the, the unity of all the tribes of mankind, when there has to be one fold and one shepherd. And there are prophecies of this in all of the major religions of the world, and many of the minor ones as well, that there will come this time when we will all come together as a single family. As I began to understand what, in the metaphors, Baha'u'llah's writings are very metaphorical. To begin to understand that kind of writing, that was the problem when I first started reading it, is I had trouble understanding metaphorical writing. That's what he was saying, and, and Abdu'l-Bahá was much clearer, more straightforward in his writing. And again, he just reinforced those points of the unity of the world. I came to the point where I just logically couldn't do anything other than accept the faith. You know, it was like a door opening then, and it's still like a door opening all the time, because on the one hand, the study of the of the writings, and we have three central, well, Four, considering the writings of the Bab, the, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder, his son, an appointed successor, uh, Abdu Baha, and Shobi Effendi, Abdu Baha's appointed successor and the guardian of the faith, and now the Universal House of Justice, uh, an elected governing body over the whole Baha'i world. Reading all of those writings and engaging in the world with those writings as a basis, just opens new doors every day and leads to confirmations in one's life. When people ask what a confirmation is, I go back to that time when I'm before, and I've had so many since then, but this was the most magnificent one in my mind. And it really brought me back into the course that led me to, to the faith eventually, was that hard decision for me when I acquiesced to my wife's wishes that we go back to California and I finally said yes and the next day there's a out of the blue there's a job offer for me that's exactly what I'd been looking for you know that's a confirmation you just have doors opening with confirmations like that so how would you say Gary becoming a Baha'i influenced the work that you did afterwards. We were living on a little on the five acres outside of Mariposa. We went to Yosemite a lot, and Riva and I both just loved that place so much. We were up there one weekend hiking around, and then we came back and we ran into an old friend that I didn't know all that well, but he he was at that point the director of the Yosemite Mountaineering School that I had worked for back in the 60s when it first opened. We were chatting, and, and he said, you know, we, we need another guide this summer. Would you like to come back and work for us? This was in that time when I was being a carpenter and odd, doing odd jobs, and that just sounded like a tremendous opportunity <laughs> to get back up there because things weren't really going for very well for Ruben and I on our five acres. We had adopted a son back in 1974, so Reva waited till he was out of school, 
that summer. I started in, I think, April or early May, and she came up in June after school was out, and we moved into the little town of El Patel, got a trailer. I was working as a guide, and I worked for the, the mountaineering school for a year and a half, and I knew I wanted to do more. I tried applying to the park service as a biologist, but I'd been out of school so long. All the people I was competing against for positions had just come out of school and talking around and and stuff with some of the park service people I knew. They suggested that I consider becoming a park ranger in law enforcement. The big needs in Yosemite was for people with search and rescue skills, mountaineering skills, which I had in abundance. That's what I did. I put myself into what's called a seasonal ranger school and put in my application and I got hired and started working as a park ranger in May of 1982. My number one responsibility on a day-to-day basis was law enforcement. The National Park Service law enforcement people have one of their guidelines is that they they try to take a an educational approach to contacts with people before they take any sort of an enforcement approach. Because people are in a different environment, they're they're not familiar with how to behave in those environments and a lot of the infractions that they may get themselves into, like picking flowers or chipping rocks or things like that, driving off the roadway, they're just, well, that looks like a good parking place, and they'll just drive out there. So rather than approach people with a harsh front, you approach them as a teacher initially. That conformed, I think, with a growing Baha'i identity that I had. I was soon confronted with the other side of that, which was the more hard law enforcement situations that you had to face. And I wasn't totally comfortable. There there was a a broad range of approaches that people would use, from very forceful to softer. My growing Baha'i identity had a tendency to move me towards the softer approach in some of those situations. Some, if you're dealing with a rowdy drunk driver, the soft approach is limited. (laughs) But in a lot of other situations, it isn't. I'd say at that stage, the the largest influence was how I interacted with people, both my fellow employees, rangers and others, and with the general public. And it gave me an arena within which to, to practice the social skills and values that I was acquiring as a Baha'i. At one stage, I spent a little over two years as a jailer in the Yosemite jail. There's a Yosemite is exclusive federal jurisdiction, and so they have their own jail. And again, I was in much closer contact with people where it's typical to take a, a much more abrasive, hard stance. And then there were a lot of instances where I didn't think that was appropriate. I would try to see each of these people that were in oftentimes had all kinds of drunken, disorderly, drug issues, theft, where people were seen as criminals. 
And I tried to see them as noble human beings that were in a bad situation. And that often created a certain internal tension because that wasn't the typical way that they were being treated by others in the jail. So it was another testing arena, how to put into practice the values that I was learning as a Baha'i. And I think had an influence both on inmates within with the other rangers and law enforcement people that I was in contact. The jail was really the transition point, thinking that I was going to be there just a short time. It was how I would get permanent status with the government. It became more difficult, and I had to be there for at least three years, and I didn't make that three years. And so I I went back to working as a seasonal part-time and decided to go back to school to get a master's degree. I had been off and on in various ways and continuously dealing with environmental issues. So I said, okay, this is a chance for me to really spend some time and make sense out of both my Baha'i views and what the Baha'i faith is telling me about the condition of the world and going in a little bit deeper into the science and academic aspects of this. After a little bit of research from around a few different campuses, I enrolled at the Cal State University Stanislaus and Turlock, enrolled in an interdisciplinary class. It's a program where you can design your own interdisciplinary course. It was a whole mix of biology, anthropology, geography, political science, public administration, philosophy, ethics, trying to get a broad perspective on social and environmental issues that we were facing. My thesis turned out quite a bit longer than any of us thought it would. (laughs) In the introduction, I talk about the Baha'i faith some, and in terms of my motivations, I took the position that if one is to really understand what the author is writing, they have to know the assumptions, where he's coming from what his worldview is. And so I had to lay out at least a sketch of how I saw the world from the perspective of, of the Baha'i faith. You know, and I identified that as coming from the Baha'i faith. In the end, I called it a, a master's in you know, interdisciplinary studies, human ecology. It's taking the concepts of ecology and system science and to some degree social science, anthropology, and looking at the human environmental complex as one thing rather than as two separate related things. So it was very much in line with the worldview that Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Bahá lay out for us. When I finished that, part of my thesis work involved working with a bunch of environmental groups and local governments and federal agencies in the San Joaquin Valley that were working on environmental issues. They're sort of doing case studies. One of my three thesis professors happened to be the head of a consulting group that had just been initiated working on developing endangered species recovery plans for 30-some-odd species in the greater San Joaquin Valley area that had been threatened by water contracts, water diversions in the valley. And it was the result of a huge 
lawsuit that the federal government and these water districts lost, and they were forced to pay for this program, of which we were one small part. So I was working with state, federal, local agencies, and private organizations in this consulting firm on endangered species-related issues. I did that for two and a half years. Yosemite Valley had this huge flood in January 1st, 1997. It just wiped out the valley. And it put Yosemite into this huge planning mode because they had to replace so much stuff and they were in the process of trying to revise their general management plan and doing a whole bunch of things. And so there were jobs that were opening up in that area and I applied and got a planning job uh, working for the Park Service. That was in January of 97 and I retired in the end of February in 2007. So I spent 10 years as part of this incredibly political, public process of planning for Yosemite Valley. I was in charge of quite a bit of the public involvement of that effort, particularly in the beginning. And I was always pushing for openness and transparency, and to varying degrees and in some ways increasing degrees as time went on, that became less and less of what the park management and hierarchy wanted to have. So I slowly, you know, was partially pushed and partially caused myself to be moved into positions where I had less and less contact with the public, but I could maintain some integrity in terms of whatever role I was trying to play at the time in the planning process. You know, a large part of that kind of of job, as you might think, as you might know, is is attending meetings and interacting with other people as you're discussing issues and trying to decide where you're going to go and gathering information and whatnot. I would sum up what was occurring by just quoting one of my colleagues at that time who said, you know, Gary, you're our conscience. (laughs) They didn't always like what their conscience was saying, but I think I earned a fair amount of respect for speaking up for public issues and for the integrity of the planning process, more so with some of the staff than with some of the other staff. Consultation, treating people fairly, listening to what they had to say, being honest, looking for equitable solutions, following the information and the science, you know, and if you look at the world today, we're immersed in a system where there's a lot of resistance to doing that, a lot of momentum for not looking at the science, for not looking at equity and justice. Coming out of that, after I retired, I, my wife and I, we opened a bookstore, which we ran for five years. I'd always kind of had that as a fun thing I'd like to do, and, uh, and then it burnt down in May of 2012. Every one of these crises has always turned out to be another door opening that's been positive, and that's when I got involved in the the WellMed Institute, and it's still along the same lines of action, combining environmental issues, climate change, and, and sustainable development, 
the stage of the faith that we're in now, reaching out into the, to our larger communities and engaging on social issues, uh, engaging in meaningful, distinctive conversations, trying to put the ideals and the things that we know into action, initiating or participating in activities where we're trying to to make the world a better place, where we act, reflect on that action, consult, change our plans, adapt our plans, act again, and find ways to have conversations about and act uh, in their own lives and in their community lives in this arena of socio-ecological action, socio-economic ecological action. They're all entwined in an integrated complex of issues that you can't disentangle from each other. So, Gary, could you give a little background on what is the Wilmette Institute and how people can check it out? The Wilmette Institute is an agency of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Highest United States. The director is Robert Stockman, who is also a historian, and I believe he's got a degree in chemistry, so he actually has a science background as well. They have a website. You can just Google Wilmet Institute, W-I-L-M-E-T-T-E Institute, to find it. They have a host of online classes. Most of them relate to religious studies of one kind or another. A lot of them are specifically Baha'i, but they have courses in Islam and Buddhism and marriage. Just a wonderful, broad series of classes that relate religious issues to our lives. They have a class on science and religion, and then we've got the the climate change class and the sustainable development class. And those are the two that you teach? Those are the two that I've been participating in, yeah. Right. And can you give us a brief synopsis of each of those classes? The class on climate change looks at the scientific and spiritual dimensions of the issue. We go through the scientific aspects. What is climate change? What's causing it? What are the potential impacts of it? both on the environment and on human society. We look at the spiritual and religious principles that pertain to those issues and how they relate to how we respond to climate change as both a scientific and a moral problem. Gary, it's interesting that just recently the Pope had produced an encyclica about yes. this. I mean, there, there actually has been considerable religious involvement in climate change for quite some time. Some of the early proponents for acting on climate change have been various religions. The Alliance of Religion for Conservation, ARC, it's a group that was started by Prince Philip in England, bringing together members of all the religions of the world in an alliance. The Baha'i contribution to that was that we were going to start an educational program within our faith to address climate change. The first course that was produced was by Christine Mueller, and that course evolved into the Wilmette course 
that we're giving on climate change. So that has its roots back in the late 2000 and was part of this goal of, of the Worldwide Baha'i community to come up with an educational program to address climate change within our community. Gary, how about the other course that you're teaching? What is that one? It's called Sustainable Development. It goes back to the 1980s in the Brundtland Commission that was the first to come up with that sustainable development and it's the idea that throughout the world for justice to prevail and environmental ecological health to maintain human development has to be sustainable it can't undermine the biological and physical basis of life and it also can't undermine society it has to be just and it has to be sustainable there's been major United Nations programs moving in that direction. Well, that report of the Brundtland Commission was United Nations ever back in, I think it was about 1987 or thereabouts, the late 1980s. That's been ongoing. The Baha'i international community has been very active in those discussions at the UN and regional UN levels. Also, the International Environmental Forum, which began in Europe but has now got membership from throughout the world, it's a Baha'i-inspired organization, follows that same subject and provides input to different groups and organizations. And the Baha'i international community has written any number of papers that have been submitted to the United Nations and other organizations on the issue of sustainable development from a religious and moral perspective. So anyway, that information is covered in the course, and it's similar to, to the climate change class. We look at it from the perspective of the actions that individuals can take in their own lives and in the lives of their communities after they've learned about both the, the scientific and political aspects, social aspects of sustainable development, what does that mean for their own lives? So, Gary, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and the work that you're doing. It sounds wonderful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gary Colliver, outdoorsman and climate change activist. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
children are playing and running like the way that it should be. But one will wear the star and one will wear the crescent. Never one will change from friends to enemies. But we are one. Pakistani village, a young boy on crutches takes a fall and lies helplessly there. And he holds out his hand, but no one will take it. They won't touch him, clothes that he wears. On a side street in Selma. Black child sitting in a squat car, protected from the whites. Cause it burning a cross to send her a message. And you can see the fear in her eyes.
this morning with a dream to change the world Just wanna bring a smile to every boy and every girl Can't do it by myself, on my own and all alone The world needs changing now, so let's all get in the zone Every woman, every man, come and join me, lend a hand It's time to step it up and lead our children to the promised land The golden age of unity, of freedom and equality Peace on earth is possible, just need a new mentality Open up your heart and open up your mind Open up your spirit and guess what you will find Instead of us versus them always focused on the enemy You'll see that your enemy is just like you and me The world is one country and mankind is citizens Time to come together y'all, all seven billion Turn war into peace, turn hate into love Turn your frown into a smile, go give somebody a hug I can, you can We can change the world
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.